Welcome back to the How To Fitness Podcast. My name is Kate Lyman. And I'm Michael Ujoa. And we're here with another deep dive. Yes, another deep dive episode. These are going down well. I'm really enjoying the deep dives, Kate. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like, I know I'd have to say this anyway. I would maybe lie if I hadn't. But I feel like I've learned a lot from the podcast so far. And this was kind of the goal of doing these deep dives, right? Just for us and our listeners to I've... kind of gain a little bit greater insight. I big time have learned a lot and it's really fun because then I want to like share these facts with everyone I talk to. I'm like, hey, did you know? Which is really annoying. I also like, I need to kind of calm down because I feel like, especially this episode, I was like scratching some weird like investigative journalistic itch that I didn't know I had because I like had some calls, some food scientists, and then I like worked with a researcher and I was like, I don't have time for any of this. But also, it's very fun. So I don't know. I'm just really enjoying it. Everyone in the area you live is now so sick of you talking about the podcast. When they see you, they're just like diving into doorways to get out of the way. Yeah, (laughs) it's exactly that. That's exactly what's happening. Cool. Right. right, So so, yeah, what are we chatting about today? Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about hyperpalatable foods. Um, What makes foods freaking delicious, good, can't stop eating them? What, What are the implications of this? What are the implications of more hyperpalatable foods um, ac- accessible to us more often now? And we're going to dive a little into the controversy of food addiction. Is it a thing? Is it not? How does that impact us? And so as always, I, I feel like something that we keep um, stressing is that we want listeners to come out of this podcast um, as more educated consumers and more informed consumers. And I feel like that has been the goal here in in doing the deep dive research here, not saying eat this, don't eat that. We're never going to say that. If you know Michael and I, that's just not our jam. But what we can say is, hey, here's the information. Here's what hyperpalatable foods are. Do you, you know? Yeah. I I feel like I don't know anything about this topic at all. I know... uh, there's kind of things they say like high fat, oh, sorry, high salt and high sugar content, um, like different things that the, the way they can set up food stuffs to make mm-hmm. a, to make them really delicious towards us. That's like the very basic level of what I know. So I'm actually excited for this one. Uh, what what would you say, knowing that hyperpalatable food is basically one that is like engineered to be delicious, mm-hmm. what's your favorite? Maybe we have that in our mind throughout and then it's like... It keeps tying back all the data to this one food. It would be the food that you feel like this is so delicious. Like it has hit a point of of perfection that I just every time I eat it, it is fantastic, and I could eat more. Oh, wow! I I mean, I would say like McDonald's. I guess that's probably like a good go to, right? I I mean, I know as a personal trainer, um, as a nutritionist we probably shouldn't say i really like mcdonald's uh, but i do like it's delicious and there's something about it that makes you want a lot more of it so i'd probably yeah i'd probably go for that that feels not i mean no it feels surprising that you say that because i just feel like mcdonald's is always like Meh. it's like flat it's so, always you know like wilted and fat but do you know what <sighs> i live in north america maybe your mcdonald's is really good maybe because i've had I... it abroad and it is much better Maybe it's something they do with the food here because there's something about it that wants you to come back for more. But then every time you do eat it, you are always a little bit like, well, that wasn't as good as I thought it would be. But then you really want it again. So, I mean, this probably just feeds into what we're about to discuss today. Do you know what? I get down with the McFlurry, though. Like, like I agree that you could just, like, the, the texture, taste of McFlurry is, like, perfection. So, do you know what? For me, it would be 
cookies, but specifically those, the ones with the pink frosting on top and they're like a short breadish cookie and you can like literally get it at the gas station. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, I know exactly the ones you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, some they, people think they they're not very cheap, good. But, but they're good. Oh, they are. Yes. Yeah. But they're also delicious and the amount of sugar in them, like how sweet they are, like kind of hurts your mouth in the best way. So Yeah. And I guess my final one as well is I love a jelly bean. Like I love jelly beans. I Watermelon we just went beans. to Costco yesterday and Emma's bought like a massive tub of jelly beans, which is very dangerous because you can't just have a jelly bean, right? You have to have like 10 at a time. Yeah. Well, don't let's talk about why. Let's talk about why that is. Okay. I'm, ex- I'm excited. So hyperpalatable foods. That's what we're talking about today. And these foods refer to foods that are engineered to be extremely tasty, just like what we're talking about. Um, they're engineered to be extremely appealing and I'm putting this in air quotes here, addictive, because we're going to talk about that last point about addiction in a bit. But hyperpalatable foods contain combinations of fat, sugar, salt, and other flavors that stimulate the reward centers in the brain. The flavors are often amplified compared to foods found in nature. So think they're saltier, they're sweeter, they're richer. And we're talking here about something like a fast food milkshake, like we just talked about, very salty potato chips, or a gooey chocolate chip cookie, or rich and creamy ice cream. In our episodes, we've kind of already talked about this, that we really want to reinforce that there's no good or bad foods, right? We're like very much breaking the dichotomy of these foods. I think we've touched on that in several episodes now, and I want to make sure that that remains a focus throughout this episode. So hyperpalatable foods are not bad. They have no moral compass, no moral weight. They tend to be more processed and they tend to be more calorie dense due to processing techniques. Um, there's things like, you know, adding fat and removing fiber or grinding up the food to make it easier to consume large quantities. Um, but that's just a fact. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. I, someone actually left a comment on a post of mine yesterday about this. Um, it's, I always find it quite funny when you do a post and someone agrees with you, but then they throw in something that's like a bit woo woo and something I don't agree with. And it was like, yeah, you're right these foods are just poison. I was talking about like hyper-processed foods, um, ultra-processed foods, right? And I had to kind of send a really nice reply, like, thank you, but I don't agree with you because yes, there may be foods you shouldn't include in your diet all the time, but the danger is always in the dose. Like you can have a bit of it, but just they're not very nutrient dense. So maybe don't base your whole diet around them, right? Exactly. And that's what what the takeaway should be here. So they're created to make us want more. They're created to make us crave them, right? And so when we feel like we're craving these hyperpalatable foods, we're not broken. (laughs) We're not messed up. We are literally reacting just as these foods are designed to make us react. And I feel like that's something so important to remember. So often the term hyperpalatable food has been used interchangeably with junk food, Um, but there's been really no standard definition there. And then in 2019, a Kansas University research team conducted a study to determine a quantitative definition of hyperpalatable foods. They can now be defined by the presence of three characteristics. So the first one is containing a specific combination of nutrients. This can be a combo of fat and sodium, which we can think of like how when you cook a vegetable in like a cream sauce, it becomes actually very good. Just kidding. I love vegetables, but it becomes yeah. <laughs> much better. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Or it can be something like the combo of fat and simple sugars that we find in something like chocolate. So the second thing is creating an artificially enhanced eating experience where this food tastes better than a, than a natural food you'd find like 
in the world, right? So each combination level of ingredients works together to create a higher desirability as a payer than when considering the same ingredients alone in nature um, because these combinations aren't found in naturally occurring foods. Like we don't find things like salt and sugar (laughs) together in We need to to design like a French fry tree, right? (laughs) Exactly. There is no French fry tree. And this is why we're in this in this boat. (laughs) So these foods are artificially constructed and artificially enhanced rewards in the brain follow, right? Like we have a dopamine response that wouldn't happen from a food that's not um, artificially engineered in this way. The third thing that I find really interesting because I did not know this actually to be true as in like rooted in research is that hyperpalatable foods slow one satiety mechanisms. So you can eat a lot more calories and not feel as full. Um, and the reason I said I didn't know exactly it was root in research is that we feel that way oftentimes, like we're overriding fullness when we eat a lot of hyperpalatable foods, but we actually find that it this slows your satiety cues. That's wild. That, um, so yeah, I get that. Cause like you go, let's bring it back to McDonald's, right? You eat like a burger and fries. It's amazing how that food doesn't really make you feel that full. But I always have to like slow myself down because I'm like, right, this is probably going to hit in a bit and then I will be full rather than going to buy some more because that's kind of the goal, right? Yeah, that's the goal. The food is literally designed to encourage overconsumption. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I actually learned something really interesting about something called a bliss point. Um, a bliss point in food engineering are like is like this optimized combination of sugar, fat, salt, texture, and aroma that creates maximum palatability and like maximum irresistibility. Is that a word? I don't know. I yeah, know no, it is, it is now. So, that's the, bl- the so bliss point. That's awesome. It is like the sweet spot, essentially. Like the sweet spot of food being the most delicious ever. Um, and when when these foods create, when, when they contain ingredients at bliss point level, like the way it lights up the reward systems in our brains and craving centers in our brains makes us want to keep eating and eating and eating it. Isn't that just incredible? That is really And terrifying, cool. right? Yeah, it's a little bit scary because I feel like we're we're kind of overriding the natural instinct of our bodies, right? Of like, eat a good amount of food and then you'll feel full. Whereas these evil scientists are kind of helping to override our natural systems to make us eat more. It is, it's awesome and very scary. Right. So something else that's interesting is we think about like the definition of hyperpalatability will differ by culture, right? Because I think I can speak for the USA. I believe we probably eat things higher in sugar, (laughs) sweeter, denser, saltier than somewhere else. Or just literally yesterday I was walking down the street. I was eating a lollipop, a Mexican one, and it's like a fun dip, but the lollipop was watermelon and like the fun, you know what fun dip is, right? Is that like, like, you got like the sherbet dip in the bag that you dip the- Like the stick, like the powder. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's like powder. So in I the didn't know it dip, was called like, that, but maybe it's just different branding. Yeah. It's probably different branding. When this was similar, but you have your watermelon or pineapple lollipop and you dip it into chili and like Ooh. chili and salt. And then you like eat it like that. And I was like, man, this is so good. And then I was thinking, you know, a few years ago I was iffy on the sweet spicy as much as I love it now. Like it was not at the same level of. So is it literally just like, it's like sweetened chili with salt or like what? Or is it literally it's like just... It's like tahini. Do you know what tahini is? Yeah, it's like yeah, that yeah. chili, salty oh, spice, nice. you know, you put on fruit or whatever. Yeah, it was like a fun dip of tahini. I like When that. you come to Oaxaca, 
will eat all of the foods. So side note on, on, um, on the bliss point, like I said, I had a call with a food scientist, um, and our conversation was so interesting. It made me be like, in another life, I'd like to be a food scientist, which is a toxic (laughs) trait of mine is thinking I want to do all the things, but he, he was saying like, it is pretty wild that when they put he um, when they put people in the focus groups, right? Like they're in this two-way mirror in a room behind a two, and the researchers are on the other side of this two-way mirror. About five minutes in, individuals will forget they're being watched, and they will put out sweets and treats and desserts, etc. And as a food scientist, the the quote power they have over people to eat their foods and say, man, this is so good. Wow. I can't even stop. This is, if it was even sweeter, I don't think I'd ever be able to stop. Like the power that these food engineers have over consumers is incredible and they know it. And it's not even with malice. It's, it's, it's capitalism. (laughs) It's sales, right? (laughs) It's sales. And that is just mind blowing to, when you, when you think about it, like, it's like a duh, of course that's the case, but then also like, wow. That's crazy that people Yeah, are but I think there's there's that. power there's power in knowing that, right? Exactly. I think that's probably the reason you you wanted to do this topic. Like, yes, this is happening to us and it's quite difficult to fight against it, but just knowing that, like I said with the McDonald's, I'll know that I won't feel full straight away, so I'll like slow down and won't buy more food. Um or this... or knowing that like you're not broken when you want to eat more than two Oreos, which I think like a serving size is two Oreos and like Who's going to do that? Ever eaten because just Oreos. the Oreos are designed to make you want to eat more than two Oreos. Yeah, exactly. So when food, snacks, and treats are good enough to be purchased over and over and over, companies making and distributing these foods notice, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. So we as consumers have enjoyed the rise of convenient packaged foods more and more um, because they've become more available to us. So there have been similarities noted between how tobacco companies in the 80s and food companies now, well, 80s from now um, to now, have both used aggressive marketing and product development tactics, kind of one and the same. Mm. Further research found that the tobacco giants Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds have also owned major American food companies. Philip Morris still owns Kraft. R.J. Reynolds owned Nabisco until the early 2000s, and this resulted in almost double the number of new food products being introduced in the U.S. between 1985 and 1998. Most of these products were snacks and frozen foods, and they kind of that was like the the surge of the popularity and accessibility of these hyperpalatable foods. So, mm-hmm. two studies showed that the tobacco industry's involvement in the children's beverage market resulted in implementing specific strategies to market directly to kids circumvent parents and to sell products using a lot of the coloring and messaging directly lifted from tobacco ads that's it's so bad isn't it and just as soon as you say that all of these like childhood adverts of foodstuffs and toys and things just popped into my head and it just shows how powerful that is because it's still ingrained in my brain now as a 33 year old adult right it's um yeah you can't win (laughs) you just you just can't you can't and, mm-hmm. and if it sounds like a little conspiracy, like big foods out to get us, whatever, um, company documents revealed that their strategic objectives were to create food and beverage products that would, quote, satisfy physiological and psych- psychological needs similar to those satisfied by cigarettes. It Damn. is to leave people wanting more of the same as tobacco does, which is an addictive substance, right? Nicotine is addi- addi- mm-hmm. addictive, period. So 
it's just incredible, right? And and I think, I mean, to the point that we keep coming back to, there's power in knowing that we are told to enjoy these foods to a point where we feel out of control. We are not out of control. Mm-hmm. We are not broken. We are not messed up. We are, we, these foods are engineered um, to elicit these responses, right? So in a cross-section of foods from U.S. food databases in both 1988 and 1998, it was found that any food produced by a tobacco-owned company was statistically more likely to be classified as a hyperpalatable food. We'll Damn. do that. Do you, I don't know if this is the case. So I know in the UK, there's always talk about burning certain adverts of certain foodstuffs and products at certain times so that kids can't view it. Have you, do you have that in the US as well? I do not know, but I would Mm. say no. I don't, I don't know. Isn't that interesting with now streaming services where we get less advertisements from like the TV blaring in our face and more sneaky, (laughs) less Mm. obvious ones, right? influencers or Instagram ads or I don't know product placement more than anything I'd say yeah it's so true so I've just quickly googled this whilst we're speaking and so there's always talk of this right they're like oh we're gonna ban junk food adverts because we want people Mm -hmm. to eat healthier but it just always gets like kicked down the road a little bit further and this article is from December last year and the UK government's decision last week so that would be um yeah, in December 2022, uh, they decided to further delay implementing legislation to restrict junk food advertising on TV and online until October 2025. So it's like a put a pin in it type of situation. Yeah, pretty much. So, now so actually, I'm have to deal with that with Jude, aren't I? He's going to be looking at all these <laughs> right? junk food adverts on TV. Uh, yeah. I can't think about that yet. In yeah. Oaxaca, the state of Oaxaca is the only state in Mexico to actually have. Um, like laws around consumption of hyperpalatable foods. So specifically all of these packaged foods are, have um, labels on them that say like excess sugar, excess fat, excess sodium, et cetera, not for purchase under 18 years of age. Ah. Um, But it's not enforced from what I can tell. I was going to say like, is it more just to try and scare people off rather than actually. I believe so. It's more like a fear mongering tactic. And honestly, you know, we become conditioned to any type of notification or um, warning label. So I feel like my eyes now gloss over it. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas at first I would like, sometimes it would be really reasonable, like to be on some can- processed candy. And then you'd find the same excess fats on like a package of pistachios. And you're like, well, I mean, it fact, it's high in fat, but this is a different yeah. game here. I guess it's the same um, <laughs> to like cigarette packets that have like pictures of people with cancer. Exactly. And people are still exactly. like buying them because they just kind of zone out to it. Yeah. No, we have so much to talk about that I'm actually going to kind of skip over a little bit. Um, but one more fact that I want to share. Um, in 2016, it was discovered that the sugar industry had funded and published research in the 1960s to highlight the hazards of fat. So we can think about that and we can put yeah. that on a timeline of fat fear, right? Mm-hmm. And and a lot low fat yogurts and cottage cheese and all that foods, all those foods, while simultaneously just downplaying the risks of sugar. So they were downplaying sugar, putting That's fear it. around fat. It's not surprising, but also seeing it written out in research and in studies makes it just hit a little different. Um, so this discovery also revealed that the sugar industry had continued to influence the scientific debate for nearly 50 years. 
Politicking like this is not unique to sugar. It's just one example of how an individual company or industry works to increase its own profits by influencing consumer preferences um, and government support because we know that lobbying exists as well, right? Like these manufacturers mm-hmm. are lobbying to have more sway in, in the food industry. Um I love that. We can go full conspiracy theorists with this episode, can't we? It's great. It's, um, yeah, because you did see it. Didn't you? I feel like we're going the other way now, though, right? Like, we're, for a long time, we were like, fat, bad, don't have it in anything. Whereas now you've got the kind of keto yeah. carnivore crowd that are like, fat's awesome. Eat as much of it as you want, but sugar's really bad. Um, I think now we're in confusion and contradiction. Like, that's yeah. that's kind of the phase we're in, right? Because yeah. Because, you know... Fat was bad, and then carbs were bad, and then meat was bad. You know, it's just just all (laughs) bad. It's all bad, and we're all confused. Um, So not only are these foods manufactured, marketed, and funded to be as appealing as possible, they're also generally less expensive, right? And they're more readily accessible. That's all due to mass production, um, which is great in some instances. Let's talk about accessibility to different Mm -hmm. foods, but it's also – outrageously easy to overconsume hyperpalatable foods and overconsumption leads to poor health outcomes. Um, so what I wanted to look into is what I know is a very controversial topic in research. Is the impact exacerbated by any potential addictiveness? Is there food addiction? Because yeah, it's kind of a yes, yes and it's kind of a no. Yeah, um, it's the two camps, isn't it? Once again, of like, yes, food's really addictive. And then the other camp being like, there's no such thing as food addiction. Like it's either one exactly. or the other. Exactly. Right? And I think just being dismiss- dismissive of it, like, no, food addiction isn't real, is completely inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't definitively say, yes, that's a thing. So there's growing research investigating the idea that certain foods may trigger addictive like responses in the brain. The food addiction is not formally recognized as a clinical diagnosis. So that's kind of where we're at. We're like, "Mm, we're seeing tenants of this, but we can't say for sure. Um, What we do know is that brain imaging studies show that high calorie, hyperpalatable foods stimulate reward and pleasure centers in the brain similar to drugs of abuse. And this suggests that there's an addictive like neurobiological response and these addictive behaviors have been seen repeatedly in animal studies so that's another thing where i think a lot of people want to like throw out animal studies like we're not animals it doesn't matter no that is a root of really good research so we we have to take that into account right um we just haven't seen the same definitive addiction repeated in human studies so in In 2017, a research team conducted a meta-analysis of more than 100 studies on food addiction, but they were unable to conclusively identify a singular specific food or ingredient. So it wasn't like, this is addictive. So they didn't find anything that triggered an addictive-like response within humans within statistical significance. Um, But kind of where it left off after this pretty large meta-analysis was we need more research and we need more dietary assessment tools in this area. So here's an excerpt from the 2017 study um, by Schultz. Highly processed foods with added fats and or refined carbohydrates clustered together and were associated with greater loss of control, liking, pleasure, and craving, indicating that these foods may be particularly reinforcing and capable of triggering an addictive-like response in some individuals. So again, it was like, I don't know, kind of. Um, But here's what we do know. 
Um, and we're going to touch on an eating disorder real quick. So that's just a quick content warning. It has been found that those with binge eating disorder target hyperpalatable foods to consume during a binge to induce the artificial reward response in the brain. Binge eating hyperpalatable foods releases dopamine and opioids in the brain reward pathway, which may reinforce even more overeating. Um, and so from, from the perspective of binge eating disorder, which is a, a diagnosed eating disorder, that makes sense you know, because we're overriding a lot of satiety cues and a lot of um, how we're feeling in and out of our body. Um, from the perspective of thinking of when we get into overeating, that sometimes people label as binging, but we're thinking like the night overeating where you feel a little out of control and you're kind of like ravaging through the pantry. We don't generally go for broccoli or baby carrots or chicken or, you know, non-hyperpalatable foods. Those do not scratch the itch of what we're looking for in those instances of overeating. Yeah, I get that. That's, yeah, so that so kind of is, it is addictive. That's what it's hinting at, right? But still mm -hmm. it's like not fully kind of signed and sealed with the research quite yet. So exactly. Okay. So here's, like here's what this looks like in the brain. And that's kind of what I wanted to dig into a little more. Cause I was like, I, you know, we're, we're not, we're not, um, well-trained in this field. So I'm just going to speak to what I can find, what I can understand and what I can digest. Speak um, about yourself, Kate. But the, oh, yeah, these, foods, well. <laughs> <laughs> these foods stimulate reward pathways. So foods layered with fat, carbs, and flavor chemicals overstimulate the innate reward centers in the brain that respond to natural unprocessed foods. Um, this releases more dopamine than an un unprocessed food, right? And so we want more. We yeah. then create this conditioned response. So cues like an ad or the sight of a hyperpalatable food trigger this conditioned dopamine responses that drives this food-seeking behavior even more. Um, again, we are we are in at times powerless to this cycle, right? Like it's this is created to make us stuck in the cycle. Then constant stimulation from hyperpalatable foods is thought to reduce D2 receptors in the brain associated with the reward response. So it perpetuates more eating to get the same feeling, right? Like we've established this baseline of like, that wasn't sweet enough. I need more and mm -hmm. then I need more and I need more. And alongside that, there's this disruption of hunger and satiety cues. So natural hunger and fullness cues get overridden and then it's easier to overconsume. And we can also find blood sugar and hormone disruptions as well, um, which makes sense in conjunction with what these foods actually look like. Um, and then some M fMRI scans show that areas of brain linked to addiction um, activate in response in these like addiction centers essentially. And that suggests potential habit formation. So where we can't see as much, there's this like addict, like true addiction. There's this definite habit formation going on and conditioning to want these foods more, to feel a little less in control of our ability to stop eating them and then to perpetuate that cycle. Okay. So it's a recap, just um, making sure I'm caught up here. Okay. Yeah, that's a so lot. You. We're, so we're eating the food and our brain is going, this is delicious, you should eat more. And then over time from eating those foods, it has like less of an impact. Therefore, our brain is saying we need even more of them to hit that level of satisfaction that we had previously. Correct. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. So I know. And that's a lot to think yeah, about. Yeah, it is. Cause I'm also thinking, so I, I'm thinking from experience here of like when we eat, like I, I go through periods of eating more junk food than I normally do. Cause I feel like 
the more I have, the more my body kind of wants it. And I guess this is feeding into that feedback loop that you've just mentioned there, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have to kind of like, not fully step back or detox that horrible word, you know, completely <laughs> from processes, but I feel like I need to like purposefully cut down on the amount of hyper processed food I'm eating to kind of reset the amount that my body feels is the right amount to have. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, I think it totally does. And I think, I think the benefit, um, into what you're speaking about, you have a lot of knowledge around your nutrition, what you need, what you feel best with when you're fueling your body in a specific way. So that that intention and that awareness is really powerful because it mm-hmm. it makes these foods less powerful, right? And I don't well, let me summarize where I'm where I'm at there and then let me like throw out what I'm what I'm thinking about right now. <laughs> but like in summary, from from that long list I just I just shared Hyperpalatable foods, they essentially hijack and dysregulate our normal appetite control. Mm. Like that's what it, that's what's happening. It's like this is not the natural process of how we would experience hunger, satiety, etc. And this adri- this drives addictive like consumption. Um, and this is especially true in vulnerable vulnerable individuals. So whether that be emotionally vulnerable, uh, financially vulnerable, etc. Moderation is what helps us avoid these adverse effects. Um, But then you'd say moderation, and then you have this long list of how these foods actively work against moderation, and you're like, well, crap, what am I supposed to do here? Yeah, it's Um, so so true, isn't it? Because it literally is these people are just like trying to make us bypass human anatomy and physiology. Like it's just trying to stop us being normal humans in the way that we eat. Like that's the goal of these companies, it's wild. Exactly. And what I was going to say is like, I, I feel like some of this starts to sound like this fear mongering around foods. And I'm like, you, you know, I say there's no good or bad foods. And then there's all this information. Um, I am currently trying to reconcile that because there are no bad foods. And 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 when we take away those labels, we give ourselves a lot more permission. Uh, we promote a better relationship with food across the board. And this knowledge is helpful to give that food less power. Um, and to make educated decisions around how much we want to consume, right? Um, or understand why it feels hard to stop consuming certain foods. Yeah, I think there's incredible power in that. And I think even just like on a personal level, me hearing you say that, right, you'll need to consume more of that food to hit the satisfactory level that you probably were maybe last month from consuming that food. That gives so much power. And now that I'm aware of it, I can kind of help to counterbalance it slightly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's food for thought. Yeah, it is. Not intended, but you know, there it is. So let's talk a little bit about health implications and maybe about what we can do, because I feel like I've got a lot of things swirling around my brain about what what we could do about this or with this knowledge. So trends show that the prevalence of hyperpalatable foods in the United States has increased steadily across recent decades. I think it's safe to say that I'm sure this pattern applies to the UK. I'm sure it applies to Mexico. I'm sure it applies to everywhere uh, where we're consuming more processed foods as well. Research found that a food was more than four times more likely to be a hyperpalatable food in 2018 than in 1988. Over that same period of time, grams in fiber per serving of food decrease with significance across tested food categories. So this suggests that food manufacturers have been reformulating foods over the years to be more hyperpalatable even if it's not like what we classify in our mind as like the junk food, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this could just be a, a package of processed foods. The same Fazino study that created the definition around hyperpalatable foods, they they analyze 
over 7,000 different foods from the U.S. food system, like popular foods. And they found that more than 62% were hyperpalatable foods. So they didn't test everything, right? Like there's far more foods than that. But it was a pretty substantial sample size that suggested that most foods in the U.S. are hyperpalatable foods. And this means that most foods available are also highly enticing to buy and eat and don't provide proper nutrition, really. Um, and we can consider proper nutrition, you know, like um, foods with fiber and micronutrients, which are vitamins and minerals that are really essential for our health and for facilitating different processes in our bodies. Um, we, I, I talk a lot about my, with my clients about volume of food. So calorie dense versus high volume foods, mm. hyperpalatable foods generally are these more calorie dense foods, meaning that there's more calories and fewer nutrients for the volume of food. Um, mm. and, and what we're seeing is that these, this increase in hyperpalatable foods promote overconsumption and displace more nutrient dense foods. Um, and that is where I think this becomes the most problematic when we, when, because of the overconsumption of hyperpalatable foods, we are not getting enough of those foods. We need to fuel our bodies well with the protein, the, the micronutrients, the fiber needed for a healthy body. Yeah, that's that's a good point, isn't it? Because I mean, you, you'll see it on social media quite often, but the kind of comparison of like, this processed foods type, uh, food type that you, this processed food thing that you've got here, sat next to a plate of like lean protein with a kind of uh, like a like a carbohydrate source, like potatoes mm -hmm. or something like that with loads of vegetables like you can have this massive filled plate that's actually pretty like reasonably calorie reasonable calorie intake and then you've got this tiny little highly processed thing that's there to replace it and it's just the food bulk is just wildly different and it's no exactly. wonder that people are kind of eating this thing but not really feeling satisfied and still wanting loads more food and then that's where the issues come from so i talk a lot about food volume with my clients about, you know, let's, let's prioritize high volume foods. They keep us full. They keep us satisfied. Um, they help us, you know, check the box on different micronutrients we need. And, and some of the indicators of what high volume foods are is they're high in water content. So think, um, fruits and vegetables, right? They're high in fiber content. So think whole grains and legumes and, and nuts and things like that. But we, we've learned from this, these, this information that we've been talking about is these hyperpalatable foods are generally lower volume. They have less water content in them because they've been kind of shrunk down and they've been stripped of fiber. And fiber is really what helps promote satiety as much as possible. So, um, or I guess one of the things that helps promote satiety as much as possible. So um, this all makes sense. It makes sense why not only we get full, we get less full off of lower volume foods, but also why we then want more and more and more. So when we think about all of this information, the implication of this whole body of research is that we live in a food environment in which a majority of foods are designed to take advantage of our psychology and our neurobiology, right? That's um, kind of like full stop. That's what it is. And a food environment consisting of majority of hyperpalatable foods contributes to overeating um, for adults and children. And it kind of trigger, triggers continued disordered eating patterns, um, especially for those who have already suffered with eating disorders. So it's, this is hard to reconcile, I think, because especially I think of, um, some of the messaging I promote, which is let's, let's remove labels around food. Let's remove fear around different foods. Um, and then here we have information on why we want to be mindful, extra mindful of these foods we, we, we consume. So how do we navigate it? What are you thinking about? Because I've got some ideas, 
but I want to hear what you're thinking too. It's such a fine balance, isn't it? And I think it also depends on where someone is in their journey of kind of healing their relationship with food or kind of what their goals currently are at the moment. I know there's kind of that term that gets thrown around. I don't like the term, but I kind of understand what it means. And it's like the obesogenic environment. I don't know if you've kind of heard Mm -hmm. that term used in literature before where it's kind of um, everything in regards to society and food is encouraging us to overconsume things. So we've got foods that are hyper palatable, but really low in nutrients. We have posters, billboards, TV shows, like telling us to eat all of these foods. You go to the supermarket or you go and grab fuel for your car and you've just got rows of chocolate bars and hyper-processed foods next to you. And yes, there's nothing wrong with those foods, but we really need to be careful at making sure that they're not the the kind of main bulk of our diet and trying to promote that like balance, sensible approach nutrition and not scaremongering that, oh, these foods are awful, don't eat them is really, really difficult. And I don't think I've mastered it yet, but I'm- Right, well, (laughs) even even in my own intake, and you kind of just spoke to this a little bit ago, like I very much allow myself to eat whatever I want. Gratefully, mm-hmm. I have good habits in place that I've built over years and years and years where generally I eat a good amount of protein and a lot of fruits and veggies because I like them. And I generally enjoy them. Um, but then I also have cookies and candy and what have you. Um, but I can feel at times myself getting overly flexible with those because I'm like, mm-hmm. well, there's no bad foods, you know, um, and I kind of lose the habits that I've created around what I want to eat. And so um, something I've been thinking about is with with within the context of this discussion is how can we put our focus on adding more? Mm-hmm. So have the hyperpalatable foods we want, add more. What can you add to that food you're eating, like a protein or a veggie or a fruit? Can you can you not say I'm I can't have these foods, like I can't be around them? Can we add more nutrient dent food nutrient dent food dense geez foods <laughs> alongside <laughs> And I thought you were going to mess up on the word hyperpalatability, but you just like dense was the one that got you. Dense just got me. (laughs) Can we add more nutrient dense foods alongside these hyperpalatable ones? So we're allowing this flexibility in what we consume, but also, and also um, reinforcing these habits. And can we allow this information, what we just talked about, to make these foods less powerful over us. Um, We're saying, no, we're not restricting. We're going to enjoy them when we want, Mm -hmm. but also like, I know why you're making me feel how I feel. (laughs) It's, it's so true, isn't it? And that's where knowledge is power when it comes to nutrition. And like, I love the messaging around kind of intuitive eating and, and that kind of movement within the nutrition world. But I also think there needs to be like a grounding of education when it comes to nutrition, because then once you've got that understanding, like we do, where we think like, okay, these foods, they're not that great for us in great quantity. So I'm going to pull back on it and focus on nutrients, dense foods. And that's not being restrictive or disordered. That's just being like well-informed, right? So if we can find a way to inform people without encouraging a kind of disordered approach to these diet, to these foods that can easily be consumed, that's the Mm -hmm. sweet spot. Um, I think, I think we're doing that well. Like I'm trying to think of our messaging. Yeah. I feel like we're doing it in a way that feel sensible and balanced and welcoming to most people. Um, but I don't know, maybe some people will disagree with me there, but I, I feel like we are doing it the right way. If they do, I'd like to hear it because I feel like obviously this seems like the caveat every episode, there's so much nuance here, <laughs> but I do feel like we've, we've covered a broad spectrum of areas around these foods. Um, you know, from 
industry impact uh, on consumers to health implications. So hopefully this information is helpful for some. And, and if you want to have a conversation about it, we're open to it. We love that. Yeah, it's a really cool topic. Thank you so much for deep diving it. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And if you'd love to chat more, we'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Kate Lyman, on Instagram at KL Nutrition. Uh, and me at Michael Lujoa PT on Twitter. Uh, is Twitter still alive? I don't know. I feel like it's dying a slow death. Threads, um, threads all the threads, way. Yeah, threads, uh, Instagram, TikTok, all of those. Yeah. All right. And we'll see you next week. See ya.